We're lucky there's an episode at all today, frankly, because I'd just been to the dentist here in Paris and I was quite worried I was going to come away with like 15 fillings thanks to my horrendous sweet tooth. And actually you can hear them squeaking. They're that clean. Can you hear that? Yes, I can. It's kind of disgusting. Um, <laughs> why didn't they give you fillings? Because I'm amazing. I got something called détatrage instead. I've got really advanced French dentistry uh, vocab. This is what happens when you live in a country for a while. I've also got really good bike repair vocabulary. Things that I can't say in English. Yeah, all the important things. I've got some like theatre technician vocabulary. Oh, um, get you. In Dutch that I don't even know the word in English. But that's great news and re- makes me remember I need to go to the dentist too. Visit your dentist, everyone. My teeth aren't even that clean right now. I've just been eating some olives. Speaking of olives, we're going to Greece this week. What do you think of that segue? That's not appropriate, yeah. considering what we're going to be talking about. Um, we're going to be speaking to a Greek researcher based in Athens, Apostolis Fotiadis, who writes a lot about migrant rights and population movement. It's not exactly on the front page of every newspaper anymore, the uh, influx of migrants onto the Greek islands, but it is still happening and there are tens and tens of thousands of people living in a pretty awful condition on these Aegean islands. So we'll be calling Apostolis later in the show to find out what the situation is over there. So that is coming up after, as always. Who's had a bad week, Dominic? Well, there are lots of options for bad week. And yeah, we could have gone with some pretty horrendous stories like the awful story of the car driving into the German carnival in Volksmarsen or the far-right terrorist attack that took place in Germany last week. And we also could have talked about the pretty terrifying arrival of coronavirus in Italy um, and the kind of madness. But... Instead, I've decided to talk about a bad week for a singer. Okay. I thought we could all do with a break of like all the depressing news. So the Croatian singer Josipa Lisak has had a very bad week. And I almost feel bad for saying that because as a fellow singer, I know we all have bad weeks sometimes. But I'm not giving her bad week as a judgment for her singing per se. I'm giving it to her because she's had a criminal complaint made against her due to one of her performances. I mean, you've had some bad reviews in your time, but... Hey! Not criminally bad. I have not. I'm just thinking about that one person who said your performance in the Good Week, Bad Week jingle was... What was the word they used? Frightening? No, it was nothing about my performance. She just said that the jingle was a bit scary. Uh, moving on. (laughs) Josipa is 70 years old, and she's had a pretty successful career that has spanned over 50 years. I say pretty successful, but she's actually won more than 20 Porins, which are the Croatian equivalent of the Grammys, which I think we should cover one day. And she was recently asked to sing the national anthem during the inauguration of the new president, Zoran Milanovic. He's a centre-left former prime minister who beat the nationalist incumbent at the beginning of this year. The Croatian national anthem is called Our Beautiful Homeland and you probably normally hear it sung by a choir. Here's a clip of how it might normally sound. So it's your typical bombastic choral national anthem with cymbals and a lot of pomp. 
Josipa used her typical subversive style and really took it in a different direction. Let's hear a little clip of that. different yeah different and an audio clip maybe doesn't give you the entire picture because she's rather extraordinary looking and contorts her face in quite an expressive unusual way and she's also wearing an enormous red hat Uh, she's known for her unique fashion sense and is apparently somewhat of a gay icon as well But someone didn't like this performance. An attorney, Boshko Tsupanovich, he filed a criminal complaint against her. He complained that she had intoned the national anthem of the Republic of Croatia in a mocking and derogatory manner. (laughs) The law he is citing here is Article 349 of the Criminal Code, which says... Whoever exposes the Republic of Croatia, its flag, coat of arms or national anthem to public ridicule, contempt or gross disparagement shall be punished by imprisonment not exceeding one year. Wow. Yeah. So one year for a bad performance of the national anthem, I think would be pretty harsh. And whilst doing a number of interviews in the press, the lawyer posing the charges said that he was, of course, not hoping for any media attention, but felt like it was his civic duty as a proud citizen to make the complaint. I mean, is this a good use of police time, prosecuting people for slightly outlandish singing? Well, I don't know if the police have actually taken up any time on it, and I don't know if they're going to. I somehow doubt it. Is it a good use of our time talking about it? Maybe not, but as I said earlier, it is kind of a distraction. So I enjoyed the story. The thing I find really weird about it is she clearly wasn't trying to mock the national anthem. If you listen to any of her other music, you can tell that this performance is totally in line with her own musical style, which, yeah, it is a bit unique and unusual um, or not totally mainstream. She makes some cool, unusual noises. She's got a very rich, low kind of contralto color to her voice. Mm. And she clearly wasn't the conservative choice when asking someone to sing the national anthem at the inauguration. But when I listen to recordings of the Croatian national anthem as it's usually sung, I totally get why she was booked. Things needed shaking up a little. Oh my God, are we going to get criminal complaints for even suggesting that? Am I actually? uh, No, I'm not ridiculing it or disparaging it grossly. Or maybe I am showing contempt. Shit. Ah! Let's find out. And actually, the performance was adored by some, and there have been quite a lot of tongue-in-cheek tributes to it posted online, some by her gay fans, including a great clip of a guy in his bathroom doing an impersonation whilst wearing a giant blue bucket to impersonate her big red hat. Um, I enjoyed getting lost down that rabbit hole on the internet for a while. Anyway, there's definitely an argument to be made that we shouldn't be covering this story, and I will gracefully receive your tweets and emails convincing me that I was wrong to talk about it and give it any attention to this rather ridiculous legal complaint. But it combined my two main loves, politics and singing, and yeah, some weeks especially weeks when there's a pretty terrifying plague arriving in Europe. We could all do with a bad week that isn't too consequential. And I hope Josipa isn't having too bad a week and can soon see the funny side of this drama. 
very good uh, distraction from all the fear and misery that's around this week. Thanks, Dominic. Who's had a good week? Well, uh, it's been a good week for Portugal, specifically the fight to decriminalise euthanasia and assisted suicide in Portugal. Basically, the Portuguese parliament approved five different proposals that would all give terminally ill people the right to end their suffering under very strict conditions. And this is a really big thing. Portugal is a majority Catholic country. And last time they tried to get this kind of legislation passed a couple of years ago, it failed. Now there's a socialist majority in the parliament, so there's slightly less conservative opposition to it. I mean, look, this is not something to go about lightly. Uh, For me personally, even though I think people should have the right to end their suffering if they've got an incurable disease and they're in a lot of pain, even I worry that if you design this kind of law badly, you can have really scary consequences, right? Like people feeling pressured to end their lives early so that they don't feel that they're a burden on their families, for example. For what it's worth, the proposals coming from the different parties in the Portuguese parliament, they're all pretty similar to each other. They all say that you'd have to be over 18 to request your own death. You couldn't be suffering from mental illness. You would have to be terminally ill with an incurable disease. And you would have to be suffering from pain that is unbearable. But despite the strict conditions, this is still very, very controversial in Portugal. Hundreds of people protested outside the parliament while this was being debated last week. Quite a lot of them Catholics. They are mostly people who fundamentally think that it is wrong for people to end their own lives. And they think that instead of legislating to make it easier for people to do that, Portugal should be focusing instead on improving palliative care so that fewer people feel like they just can't bear to go on living. But it does look at this stage a lot like this is going to go ahead. Uh, A couple of things could still put a spanner in the works. The Catholic Church wants a referendum on it. And you can actually request a referendum in Portugal as a non-government group. Uh, A court gets to decide and then it has to get approved by the president. And the current president himself is a conservative, and he could also just veto this whole plan. So there's quite a few factors up in the air. But I'd say it's still been a good week for people that think that it's the humane thing to do to let people end their own suffering if that's what they really want. It is a really complicated uh, discussion always, and I always find it difficult to think about. But um, something that like made it a bit clearer for me was when our family dog died a few years ago, and she was really, really sick, and the vet came over and put her down in our house with the family around, and it was done so nicely and so respectfully. And my mum was like, this is amazing. Like If this was us, if it was humans... It would be a much more gruesome situation. They'd they'd wait until we were way sicker and way more miserable and you wouldn't be able to do it at home or anything. So I agree it needs to be dealt with really carefully, but um, on balance, there's definitely progress to be made in some countries. Although here I am living in a country, I think, with some of the most progressive euthanasia laws. Right. So I think the Netherlands is one of three, I think, countries that has like sort of quite forward-looking legislation on this, along with Belgium and Luxembourg. Basically, lots of countries around Europe have different rules around it. Uh, I think Germany, Finland, Austria and Switzerland also allow a doctor to help someone to die in specific circumstances. And in some others like Spain and Hungary, you can withdraw treatment, again, in very specific circumstances. Uh, But here in France, it gets debated a lot and we still don't really have any policy in place to deal with it. And more and more terminally ill people are crossing the border to Belgium to end their lives. So I'm glad that in Portugal, at least, they're moving a step closer to giving people a choice. 
before this week's interview, we would like to give a shout out to our latest Patreon supporter. Patreon, if you don't know, is a website where you can help us to keep the show running by flinging a few dollars our way every month. And in return, you get the warm glow of supporting something that you enjoy and also access to our secret Facebook group. And depending on how much you pledge, fun stuff like postcards from Paris. Or voicemails from us. It's very fun. Our latest extremely generous supporter is Mariska Martina, who makes beautiful music, by the way. You should check out her Instagram. Yeah, you should. Thank you, Mariska. Thanks, Mariska. It's weird. I had a dream about Mariska's music last night. That's creepy. (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) I can't remember anything about it, but I just, I think I saw Mariska and listened to her music and it was really nice. Oh, By the way, she is also the winner of two of the tickets that we've had up for grabs for shows by the wonderful Charlotte Dos Santos in London, Brussels and Copenhagen. The other tickets are going to, in Copenhagen, Cecil Erickson and Niels Peterson. The other pair in London are going to Daniel Anderson. And in Brussels, the winners are... Uh, Ben Ray and Priyanka Shankar. Enjoy the show, guys, and tell us how it is. I've been listening to Charlotte Dos Santos loads since we first played a clip of her a few weeks ago. Um, Thomas is getting a bit annoyed that I'm playing the same track every morning, but hey. Which which track is it? Red Clay. Oh, it's a good one. You lucky people going to see her live. Uh, we are going to have more tickets for gigs around Europe up for grabs next month, courtesy of our friends at Live Europe. So watch this space. But now it's time to head over to Greece to speak to Apostolis Fotiadis. Yeah, I'm constantly amazed by how little we talk about the situation facing refugees on the Greek islands these days. Five years ago, I was one of these foreign reporters parachuting in to cover what at the time was the biggest story in the world. All of these people, a lot of them Syrian refugees, but also Afghans and people from elsewhere, All of these people were setting sail in these little boats from Turkey to the Greek islands, which is just a a crossing of a few kilometres at the narrowest point. 800,000 people crossed that sea in 2015. And then the next year, there was this very controversial deal between the EU and Turkey, whereby new people making that journey would mostly be sent back to Turkey, which was a safe country on paper. But processing the asylum applications of people who have managed to get to Greece has been really, really slow. And here we are in 2020 with tens of thousands of people stuck on these islands. Some of them have been there for years now, living in conditions that frankly should be the shame of Europe. And we really don't talk about it. There's been some quite big changes in the way that the situation at these camps or hotspots, as they're known officially, uh, there's been a big change in the way that the situation at these hotspots is dealt with by the Greek government since the start of the year. And we wanted to understand a little bit better what is going on. So we gave Apostolis a call, Apostolis Fotiadis. He is a researcher covering migration and borders. And we gave him a call in Athens. There are something like 42,000 refugees currently living in these camps on the Greek islands. What kind of conditions are they living in? The conditions are extremely difficult and deteriorating constantly. The population expected to live there is way beyond the capacity. So you have small cities around the camps without basic uh, facilities, no hygiene, uh, no serious garbage collection. Are the kids able to go to school and things like that? No, uh, schooling is not a case for the people that live in the hotspots. Kids that have moved uh, further into the mainland do have some opportunity for access, although this has also deteriorated lately. But in the case of families that live in the hotspots, this is not the case. And what about healthcare? 
do they get the care that they need? Some of them have made hugely long and dangerous journeys. Access to health is very, very problematic. We don't talk at all for the cases that are uh, very, very complicated and specific. For example, women that might have been sexually harassed during their trip, for them to seek uh, assistance and protection is extremely difficult. Until January, the government was periodically transferring people off the islands to take pressure off them, right? But something changed in January. Can you explain what happened? We unfortunately have to do a little bit of history here. The EU-Turkey deal of March 2016 established a pattern that people would arrive at the islands and if no serious uh, concern uh, arised, they would go back there as they returned to safe third country. And this never worked properly for different reasons. People kept piling up in the hotspots in the islands and the previous government established this uh, ad hoc pattern of diffusing pressures by transferring the vulnerables to the mainland. So people would be characterized vulnerable, then they would transfer to accommodation in the mainland. And this uh, is how years passed from uh, 16 to late 19. When the new government took over, they kept on doing that. They transferred 10 to 15,000 people to the mainland. But then uh, the entire reception system got completely congested. And meanwhile, uh, the government had taken the decision that this process is more or less a pull factor. So they wanted to implement a harsher asylum policy and they limited their efforts to create additional spaces in the mainland as well as new legislation to make it much tougher uh, to get through the asylum procedures. So the population in the hotspot exploded while the focus shifted from creating more uh, reception space to more deterrence. And that's why you have this explosion uh, in, of the population in the hotspots. You mentioned the... New Democracy, the Greek Conservative Party, are trying to avoid there being any pull factor. And that's one of the reasons why they've allowed situations to get so bad. But there isn't actually much evidence, is there, that making the situation worse on the islands reduces the pull factor? For uh, some ideologues, the mentality that uh, the worse the conditions become, the less people will arrive. It's vivid. Reality says that uh, you know, there's no direct correlation between the two. There's many factors that provoke the movement of people uh, and their arrival into the Greek islands. So we don't expect to see a severe reduction of uh, arrivals because of the deterrence policy being implemented. Uh, Now, for example, the push factors in Turkey and fears of people uh, about being returned, for example, to Syria is much stronger than any deterrence you can implement in the islands. So it's very possible that Coming uh, next spring, when the weather will get better, there's going to be again a high increase uh, of arrivals. Until last summer, there was a left-wing government. Now we have a right-wing one. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about the rhetoric that's coming out of the new government in terms of how they talk about refugees? Uh, First of all, if I may say, in order to do justice, I don't think that the policy implemented by the previous government has been uh, way more effective or way more progressive when it comes to the core of what they wanted to do. Both governments wanted to implement the eu Turkey deal. What you didn't have before and you have now, there's a much more aggressive and toxic uh, narrative being introduced from uh, senior members of the governments or of the governmental party, which uh, didn't happen as much before. There is a characteristic case that happened this week 
A couple of Syrians appeared at the hospital with their 11-month baby dead and uh, they were blamed for uh, having sexually harassed the baby. There were statements issued by the coroner indicating that this is the case. There was all this populist backlash, you know, with people uh, characterizing refugees as animals, you know, who raped their kids. And then the day after, it became obvious that this was not the case. But then, you know, the backlash had happened. And you get the impression that this kind of toxicity spreads much more easily now than uh, it would happen a year ago. As part of the government's bluster, they're also proposing a floating barrier about two kilometers long to try and deter boats from crossing into Greek waters. Presumably a two-kilometre wall is not going to be that effective at stopping people crossing over to Greece, seeing as the maritime border is around 500 nautical miles long. Is this just bluster, or is this actually something you think they might do? This is bluster, and I think it's a product of the government's realisation that they're uh, not in control of the situation, and an effort to contain the animosity that is created on the islands uh, among local population and refugee population or among the government and the local politicians through things that sound impressive but uh, in practice wouldn't really make a difference as much. So you see this happening often lately, these announcements about new initiatives or new coordinating committees which do not really materialize into implementation. I don't think so that the floating wall it's going to make any difference if implemented finally at all. But I notice uh, in the story of the floating wall, the damage that can be done by big international media who jumped on it and made it, uh, you know, number one story in Europe for a day or two. And then, you know, they just forgot about it like they forget about uh, the islands when there isn't any drama to play with. Yeah, it, it's funny. Well, it's not funny, it's depressing. But when you look at the European newspapers, most of the time it is very easy to forget that there is this absolutely crazy situation going on in Greece when it comes to refugees. Why do you think we're not talking about it more in the rest of Europe? Good question. Thank you for asking this. Um, the difference between Greece now and the rest of Europe is that uh, the actual arrivals, the sum of arrivals into Europe is insignificant anymore. It doesn't connect to anything that happened in 2015 and 16. So for the rest of Europeans, the issue doesn't really much exist. As far as it goes for Greece, the issue is very present and very pressing. We're dealing with the situation in the islands, as well as the congestion and the implosion of the reception system. So the situation is very, very difficult for the country. But uh, unfortunately, this is not something the rest of Europeans seem to feel about very much. The discussion policy discussion about how Greece could get serious help and not just checks of money in order to keep moving on uh, is not uh, appearing to be moving forward. What do you think the EU could be doing to help Greece manage the inflow of migrants? Having uh, observed the system for a very long period of time, it's striking to me that the discussion when it comes to the external European uh, frontier always focuses on border control and uh, asylum procedures. So there's always talk about how to fast-track border procedures or expedite asylum procedures in order to be able to get rid of people uh, faster if they do not deserve uh, protection. 
And this conversation has never been complemented by a discussion about how you can create a European reception system. So there is all this willingness on the side of the European Union and um, the strongest uh, European member states to send more border guards at the external frontier, to send more uh, coast guard boats, to send even uh, asylum case workers in order to try to strengthen the system on this side. But never discussions about, uh, you know, send more doctors, for example, uh, send interpreters or send social workers, which uh, is an urgency, obviously, as well, and would probably complement the entire system because you cannot expect an asylum system to work efficiently if the reception system is not there to streamline the population through the procedures. And I never understood why this does not come up as an idea into the minds of powerful politicians with armies of advisors around them. I think this is where the conversation should go. Thank you to Apostolis for speaking to us about what isn't an easy topic to talk about. If you'd like to hear more about what's going on there, there's a really good uh, podcast episode from The Guardian's Today in Focus uh, from the 11th of February called Life on Lesbos. And it gives a really human picture of what's going on there. I found it quite a striking and difficult listen, but important. I think we need a happy ending this week. Yes, please. Hit me up. This week's happy ending is kind of similar to last week's, but um, without the apocalyptic climate message at the end of it. So, yay! It's a transatlantic happy ending. Let's first go back to 1973. Deborah McKenna was 16 years old, attending high school in Maine, when she met Dreamy Sean. Sean. They dated for their final years of high school together, and when he graduated, he got a high school class ring, which is apparently a tradition in some parts of the States. Um, The rings are typically silver with a kind of colourful stone in it, and Mm -hmm. they often have a personalised inscription. I didn't know about this, but when I googled it, apparently they're all the rage. They were at least all the rage in the 70s. This one had the name of their high school written in it. It also had Sean's initials and his graduation date. That is information that will become useful later in the story. Okay, I'll hang on to that. (laughs) Okay. Before Sean went off to college, he gave Deborah his ring as a gesture of his love. Deborah lost the ring whilst washing her hands in a public toilet and was very sad about it. But Sean was actually really understanding and not at all annoyed. He said these things happen. They ended up staying together for a very long time until Sean sadly died in 2017. Deborah hadn't thought much about the ring since she lost it in the 70s and therefore hadn't ever expected to find it again. I mean, why would you? But something really strange happened. The ring was found over 6,000 kilometres away by a metal detectorist in a forest in Finland. Oh, I love your metal detection stories. This has got to be maybe the fourth or fifth happy ending that has involved a metal detector. Apparently, most of the happy news in the world is created by metal detectorists. So thank you, metal detectorists. Well done, everyone. Nobody knows how it got there. 
But uh, Deborah was incredibly moved, understandably, when she received the ring in the post, which, of course, they managed to identify her because of the inscriptions in the ring. Remember them? I remember. <laughs> she has no idea how it got there. And she said, I wish it could talk. I would love to hear the story of how it got from here to there. And if anyone knows what it is, I would love to hear what it is. No judgment, just interest. So if anyone has a secret story of how that ring managed to get from a toilet in Maine to a forest in Finland, let us know. Any theories? I would invite also fictional um, submissions on that. If anyone wants to write the short story telling the adventures of the ring as it made its way through the piping systems of Maine and then across the Atlantic somehow. Someone could record themselves doing it and we will play the story. (laughs) I'll play the great whale that swallows it at some point. I think it was more likely just someone nicked it from the toilet and took it with them to Finland. Oh, but we can dream. That's all we've got time for this week, but we will be back next week, uh, so long as we haven't been caught by the coronavirus. Uh, I've in prison for <laughs> criticising or suggesting that we do uh, bad renditions of the Croatian anthem. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on a wealth of social media websites, as always, Twitter at EuropeansPod, Instagram at EuropeansPodcast, and the other one, Facebook. Uh, just type in the EuropeansPodcast, you'll find us. Hope you all have a good week. Bye.